Hey, um, did you see the article a couple of weeks ago? Hmm. I think it was a little opinion piece in the New York Times. You know, I don't really read those very much, but that's kind of the news source that we have uh, online. And parts of it are free, which is good. And uh, so there was an opinion piece, and it was something about the villages. And apparently, according to this opinion piece, you're all a bunch of hedonists. I think that's how that, uh, we're all over this way, hedonists, that's who we are. And uh, I, I kind of see those and uh, giggle a little bit when I see it because I'm, I think, yeah, those, those are the ones that sell a good bit. And what I find is people generally see what they're looking for. And, you know, if you, if you come to the villages and you're looking for a particular kind of lifestyle and things, you're going to find that, you know, you're going to find it in a square on a, uh, any night of the week, those kinds of things. Um, and I was thinking, when I read that, I thought, this is so appropriate as we study the parables. Because Jesus talked about people seeing the parables and basically seeing what they want to see, seeing what they expect to see. He says people will be reading the parables and reading these stories, and they'll be seeing but never perceiving. Right? They see, they can read it, they can tell it's about something, uh, but they're not sure what it is. And I think this particular parable is one of those. Is, uh, we potentially see one thing when the intent is something else. And so as we read through this, pay attention to what your mind is doing, what your heart is doing, and uh, then we're going to talk about what this passage is, is teaching a little bit more in depth. Sound good? Okay, good. Well, if you're willing and able in honor of God and His Word, let me invite you to stand as we read Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For it, and now it in this refers to the kingdom of heaven, which is referenced in chapter 25, verse 1, says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, uh, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I, uh, I misread Matthew 25, 14 to 30 for uh, many, most of my life probably, and I think most of, many of us have, is because we bring a set of assumptions with us to a passage, to the Bible, and uh, we tend to see what we expect to see as we're doing it. And so I read this passage for years as if it was telling us to try harder and do better with a better attitude. And that's what I really thought this passage was about. And because many of us think that's really what religion is all about. What we do for God, the rules or the activities. God is a hard man. And uh, that whole idea bothers us. And the idea of a God who gives rules bothers us. And so when we read this passage... There are parts of it that are troubling and they bother us. And part of it is that it's, it feels restrictive. But part of it is that we identify more with the third servant in this. Is we look at God and we say, He is a hard man. And nothing we do ever pleases Him. So I'm just going to bury my little talent in the ground right here. Lest I you know, really botch things up and have to say, I lost it all. Or whatever it happens to be. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this passage and how we read it that way. And I was reminded that Martin Luther sort of read the Bible that same way. So if you're familiar with Martin Luther, he's a big uh, figure in the Protestant Reformation. He had been a monk in the Catholic Church. And the way he described himself, he said, I was the monkiest monk there ever was. Uh, meaning that if he said, I, he took all the rules and all the laws seriously. And, every, and so he tried to keep all of the rules and laws, but he found that he never had any peace of conscience because he knew these laws, but he found that he couldn't keep them. And even when he kept them, he found that inside of his heart, there were things that made it really pretty yucky and ugly still. It wouldn't have earned uh, any uh, affection or acceptance before God. And uh, he said he saw Jesus as this severe and terrible judge seated on a rainbow who never was excited or pleased with anything that he did. And one of those phrases that caught his mind was the idea in the Bible of the righteousness of God. And by that, uh, he understood it to mean that God was this righteous God who would never do anything wrong, and he held us to these perfect standards, and the way that we become right with God is by meeting the standards of this righteous God. And he felt under the weight of this all of the time, so that he said this in his later years. He said... Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punished sinners. Now, that was before Luther's realization that in the Bible, righteousness, when it talks about the righteousness of God or righteousness from God, it's not talking about a righteousness that we bring before God whereby he will accept us. So our righteousness, we bring before a righteous God, and he says, you're righteous enough, you can enter in. No. He began to understand that what the Bible was teaching that is that God gives us the righteousness we need. He gives it to us. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he used to read it one way, as if uh, it's saying we have to please this righteous God, but then he began to understand, no, it's saying that God gives us the righteousness. This is in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. In the gospel of Jesus, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. So we believe him. We believe what he says. He cleared our, our sin debt and gave us a righteous fortune. That's what Jesus did on the cross, that he died for our sins. We know that he paid for our sins because he, he didn't deserve to die. But he died because of our sins. 
But he also lived a perfect life with no flaws whatsoever. I was reading in Psalm 26 this morning, just kind of getting myself ready for this, and I was struck because Psalm 26 was written by David, but when you read it, you recognize, this can't be David. David did all sorts of horrible things, but yet this man is claiming perfect righteousness and the perfect attitude before God. Who's it talking about? Jesus. And so this is the story of the Bible. It's the story of Jesus. So I want to suggest to you that we read, we misread the passage at, at hand as if it's about works, kind of the same way that Luther read the Bible, as if it's about what we do. It's about our works. And when in fact, this, Bible, this passage actually speaks against that very religious view that says we have to appease God with our works. That's, that's not what this parable is about. It's actually about something more beautiful, truly knowing God and living joyfully in his kingdom. A person with faith delights to participate in the kingdom of God, to do for God, and to gain um, within the kingdom, not because we want to get a reward or because we have to appease, but because he's already pleased with us through Jesus. He's already satisfied with us in Jesus. And so let me show you what I mean here. There are four people in the parable. There's one master and there's three servants. The master represents Jesus. He goes away, but before he goes away, he entrusts property, it says, to three servants. Um, it calls them, uh, in some, talents. In some of your translations, may say bag of gold. A talent throws us off a little bit. When it says talent, it's not talking about our talents, our gifts, our abilities, our opportunities. It's really talking about, in, in that day and era, there was a thing called a talenton. It was a unit of measurement of weight by which you would measure gold. Right? So this is actually a pretty substantial measurement of gold. But it's saying he gave them gold, so don't read your talents. It's a weight of money. It's symbolic. And what it's symbolic of is the treasures of the gospel. It's the treasures of the gospel and the resources of the kingdom of God that God entrusts to us and brings us into when we become his people. So two servants worked and they were rewarded. The third servant didn't work at all and was punished. But it's not about what they did. It's about, what, it's about why they did what they did. And the interpretation is found in the comments of the master. So to the first two, it's almost identical when you read through. The only thing that's different are the two numbers. So to both servants, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. But to the third man, the master says, you wicked servant. Now, I am a student of movies and, and uh, cartoons, and I uh, watched a lot of Bugs Bunny growing up. And when, uh, in Bugs Bunny, when they're setting up a gag, they, would, they, they knew just psychologically it takes two to set up a pattern, and then the third kind of uh, establishes the pattern, or that's where the gag comes in. So there's this one old Bugs Bunny cartoon. You're kind of like, is he really? I say, yes, I am talking about Bugs Bunny. It's a sermon. It's an illustration. There's this old Bugs Bunny cartoon. I think it's these two gophers. They get into like a, a soda pop packing facility, and they realize that there's one point where the, the bottles go through and they pour the soda into the gopher's mouths, and so they both go through with their mouth open. So the, to set up the gag, there's a bottle that comes through, the, the juice, uh, the soda's poured into it, the bottle takes off, then the bottle comes, and then it uh, does the same thing with the next bottle, and then the gopher comes through, and he's got his mouth open, and then it fills it up. So by the time it gets to the third, you get, oh, here's a pattern, bottle, bottle, gopher, and that's the gag. It subverts our expectations. So you're like, oh, this is different. This is a little bit what Jesus is doing here. Because he gives us two examples, 
And then on the third, he subverts our expectations so that we will look and say, whoa, what just happened? Because it's like it goes ka-ching, ka-ching, kerplunk. What just happened here? And so you sit back and you take notice what is going on. So it subverts our, uh, our expectations so that we'll pay attention between the behavior of the third and what's said to him and the behavior of the first two, as explained by the master's words. And for him, it's not about a return on his investment. It's the servant's motivations. So the third, the third didn't produce any profit, but that's not the issue. He didn't even try to earn a profit as is seen by his own words. The master terrifies him. It could be a, it could be a severe judge sitting on a rainbow. Look at what he says. I mean, just look at, this is basically what he says. I would have done something with the money if only I didn't know that you were such a ruthless, demanding, overreaching, cruel, unethical jerk. <laughs> this is basically what he says to the master. It's like, you take what's not yours, you, you, over, you, you extend yourself, you overreach. So what's this about? It's about why they did what they did. This is about faith and unbelief. So faith is a positive disposition towards God based on a true understanding of God. It's a positive disposition towards God based on a true understanding of God. This is the first two. They had an understanding of who he truly was. And then unbelief, as it's being described here, is a negative disposition towards God leading us to misrepresent God to ourselves and to others. It's, and it's the only way we can self-justify uh, our rejection of what God calls us to do. And it becomes, for this guy, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because at the first, he's terrified of God, or the master, he says, I don't want anything to do with him. I'm terrified. I, I don't know anything to do but put this into the ground because he's such a tyrant. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because when the master comes back, he, sees, he says, this is who you are. You're a tyrant. And so when he's called on the carpet, the master doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry. Do I come across that way? Because he knows it's not with him. It's a problem in the heart of the servant. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, what had the master done to make the servant think this? Nothing as far as we know. As far as we know, what he said is simply not true. And the master calls him out on it. So in the passage, when we read through the passage, aside from what the, the uh, third servant says, we only see an overly generous man. We see the master rewarding, not demanding. We see him entrusting, not threatening. We see him giving opportunity, not seizing contemptuously. We see him praising others. We see him celebrating others. We, we see him exerting a knowledge of his servant's ability and, and meeting them right where they are. He invites them to share in his happiness. And in that culture, masters never did that. They just did their work. And when they finished their work, we gave them on the next, you gave them the next chore. But you, in that culture and no culture, do you do that with your slaves, with your servants? Instead, he would, when he got home, he wouldn't say, hey, show me, that's great, I celebrate. He would say, fix me dinner. Do that for me. And this master here has a completely different demeanor. But the servant can't see it. He refuses to see it. And that highlights the difference between these two, between these three men, the first two and then the third. It's really belief and unbelief. It's, about, it's not about pleasing the hard man, which is the way I read it for years. We've got to please the hard man. We've got to do all the stuff. But it's really about... Uh, this servant being wrong about who he is. And so the first two represent faith, the positive disposition. Biblical faith is a deep personal devotion um, 
to someone or something outside of yourself upon which you base your life. That's what it is. And that's what he's talking about. That's, this faith shapes the whole of life. So that's the introduction. Let's talk about the passage a little bit more and talk about some things here. First one, first point is uh, faith in Christ leads to the blessings of Christ, right? Look at the commendation the master gives the first two men. He doesn't say, now I have more money. That's not what he celebrates. What he celebrates is the faith of these two men. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's about their faith. They're faithful servants and they have been faithful. So he rewards their faith and then he brings them more fully in. So in that faith, they're connected to him. It's about uh, they're faithful to him. They trust him. There's a deep uh, affection for him. There's a deep devotion. And they wanted what he wanted. His purposes were their purposes. They loved uh, this particular man, this master. So understand, they're not faithful so that he will be attached to them. They're faithful because they are attached to him because he's already attached to them. They, they serve him because they know what he's really like. And this is a great picture of the gospel because when it comes to Jesus, our works don't make God more willing to forgive us. God's forgiveness precedes that and it makes us willing to do work. It changes us. It changes our demeanor, who we are before him. And it's not simply that we do things because we want to be forgiven. Faith is not connected just to forgiveness so I don't have to go into judgment. Faith is connected to the person who does the pardoning. I want him. He's the type that pardons. I want that person. So Charles Spurgeon said this, It's not pardon so much that makes the Christian's heart rejoice, but Christ the pardoner. It's not the pardon that captivates as much as the person who grants that. And so these people in this, they weren't expecting further reward. It was just enough for them to be in the master's house. We're with him. They were attached up front, and then the reward comes afterwards. And so what we see in this and what Jesus is teaching us is it's, it's not about the reward. It's about the master first and foremost. That's what, faith, that's what Christian faith is. It's not about being forgiven. It's about knowing Jesus. Jonathan Edwards is this big figure in American Christian history. And uh, Edwards was the third president of Princeton University. He studied at Yale. He is known as one of the greatest American scholars. But he was also a pastor, and, and many people came to faith under his preaching. And he talks about this extraordinary experience he had of being in the presence of Christ. Really, all, all, you know, probably nothing visual or, or physical taking place, but just in the depths of his soul having a, 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 a sense of the, the greatness of Jesus. And so he wrote about this. This is what he said. He said, Once as I rode out to the woods for my health, in 1737, having alighted from my horse... Who says alighted? I lighted. Having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk in divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary. I saw the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man, and His wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably, that means you can't explain it because it's so great, appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. 
This kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated. I wanted to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love Him with a holy and pure love, to trust in Him, to live upon Him, to serve and follow Him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a, love, with a divine and heavenly purity. So he's saying, I, I saw Him, and that transformed me. I wanted Him more than anything else, and, more, and what I wanted to do with my life was to serve Him completely. So faith is a positive disposition based on a true understanding of God that shapes every decision a person makes and everything a person does. We see him and are captivated by Jesus. F.F. Bruce, who's a, a noted writer about Christian theology, said, where love is the compelling power, there is no sense of strain or conflict or bondage in doing what is right. The man or woman who is compelled by Jesus' love and empowered by his spirit does the will of God from the heart. He's not a cruel taskmaster. He's not a hard man. I see his beauty, I see his grace, I see his glory, and I want to give myself to someone like that. And that leads us to our second point, which is faith in Jesus leads to effort for Jesus. The person who comes to know Jesus and love him, he's willing to put forth effort for his purposes because they love him and they love the vision he set for what the world could and ought to be. When you love something, you give yourself to it. When you don't love it, you don't give yourself to it at all. When I was... Uh, in the middle school, uh, seventh grade, we had, a, uh, we had to choose an elective. We had to choose an elective. And one of them was not to go home. So I had to choose an elective. And I looked at all the electives that were given and uh, chose the, what I considered to be the lesser of the evils. And it was banned. It was, I didn't play an instrument, but it was banned. And I thought, okay, if I got to choose something, I'll choose banned. So the first day we went in, and I wasn't expecting this, but the band director called us in to check our embouchure, which is basically the way your mouth is shaped for an instrument, your embouchure. So. And uh, I immediately thought, wait a second, I can't play the drums? I don't get to choose my own instrument here? What, kind of, what is going on here? So he took me into the office, and he checked my embouchure. embouchure. I still remember that word. It scarred me. I'm still in counseling for this, y'all. So, so he checked my embouchure, and he said... Uh, saxophone. I was like, saxophone, you've got to, I can't even do like a trumpet or something cool, you know, it's, it's a reed instrument. So there were seven of us that were selected for saxophone, and then he said, okay, now we've got seven of you, and you're going to compete, and you're going to see who's first chair and who's last chair. First chair is glory, last chair is, is shame. Okay, what do we got? <laughs> last chair, there. Okay. I hated this. Now, needless to say, I didn't spend a lot of time practicing. I wasn't very good. Um, Jimmy Cavelli. Jimmy Cavelli was a young man I met years later, and he played a woodwind instrument. He played a clarinet. And Jimmy loved the clarinet, and he was very good. He was first chair in his high school. Then he went on to be first. He got a scholarship to the University of Southern Mississippi for clarinet. And he was first chair in the symphony orchestra for the college. And then, after college, he was invited, he, he tried out for the Jackson Symphony Orchestra. And he was first chair in the Jackson Symphony Orchestra and clarinet. And uh, Rebecca and I got to go to one of their performances. And Dudley Moore, you remember that guy? 
Dudley Moore was the guest conductor for this particular performance, and Jimmy had to play Rhapsody in Blue. If you're familiar with that, it starts with kind of a clarinet trill. It goes, Now, the rest of you, I'm just kidding. Um, and so he played this, and then Dudley Moore, in front of all these people, said, that is some fantastic clarinet playing. I was like, I know that guy. Uh, then he went on to march in the Air Force marching band in clarinet. This guy was fantastic. He loved it. His heart was in it. He put himself into it, and he got to be really good at it. My heart wasn't in it. I don't know where my saxophone is. I think it's probably still in my parents' attic back before they just left it there when they moved. Probably the little pads and things are rotted on it by this point. Hated it. Now, if you can understand that comparison between me and Jimmy Cavelli, then you can understand exactly what's going on in this parable. You've got two guys who love the master. They love, they love his household. They love his vision. They love what's going on. They give themselves fully to him. And then there's the saxophonist. <laughs> then, then there's the third guy that's here. Uh, he has no desire to be a part of that. He hates the master. He believes the lies of his own heart about the master. If you think God is a mean tyrant, of course you're not going to do things wholeheartedly. Now, what's interesting about that is I want to be the first two guys, but I find that there's a lot of the third guy in me. And the way that it often works for me is this, and probably works for you is this too, is I'm fine with God until he tells me the thing to do that I don't really want to do. And then in my mind, he becomes the tyrant. He's a hard man. He's a, he's a severe judge seated on a rainbow. Why is he asking us to do these kinds of things? Right? I don't want to obey him at this point. I see that guy in me. So now, in this passage, um, now let me back up just a little bit. Let me speak to that just a little bit more. What gets me out of that? It's the gospel. Is, this, is if this God is willing to give me himself for me and to me, that means he's not going to do some, tell me to do something that's going to be harmful or destructive to me. I can trust him. Right? If he's calling me to do this, he's telling me to do it in love. So there's a, there's a necessary feedback loop where the gospel comes back into my heart and says, you're looking at this the wrong way. You've got to look at it from the standpoint of what Jesus has done for you. You're right. Jesus has already done this. He has my affection, and he also has my obedience. Now, as we come into this passage, at one level, the third servant, the third servant here represents the first century Jews who kept the laws of God meticulously in order to avoid being shipped out into exile once more. Right? So you can read about this in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he says this to them, and, and and Jesus is really, you don't find Jesus very harsh very often, but you do in, the, in that it feels like. But he actually says this to them. He says to the Jewish leaders, you neither enter the kingdom of heaven yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. And so this is what Jesus really means here back in 25 when he says, but from, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Take that talent away from them in some ways. The temple in, the, in Jerusalem was like a talent. And what that talent was meant to do was to proclaim to the whole world in this place is a picture of the forgiveness of the God of the universe. 
You can come in here, put your hands on a substitute, and your sins will be taken away, and that substitute will die in your place. It was prefiguring the coming of Christ. It was a treasure of the kingdom. It was a resource of the gospel. And in, this, in, in the first century, they, they covered over it with rules, and they kept people out saying, for you to be right with God, you have to keep all of these rules, and if you can't keep these rules, you can't come into the presence of this God. So what was intended as a picture of grace actually became a, uh, a way of keeping people out. And so this, that third servant uh, represents somebody who sees God as this hard man that has to be pleased to be able to enter into his presence. Not one who gives us righteousness, but one who demands our righteousness. But in some ways, he also, it pictures here, uh, something like Martin Luther, who, who hated God because he could not... Uh, he couldn't please him, could never please him. And I think we feel that. A lot of us experience that. What do I need to do to please this God? What are the works I have to do to please this God? Tell me. Several years ago, when I was on campus at, uh, doing college ministry, there was a young man who came onto campus. He was not a student there. And uh, I'm just ruining your microphone here, sorry. Um, it's just like insecure. You have to move something while you're thinking about changing your points. Um, so there's this young man on campus. I was meeting with a student. We were walking across campus, and there was this guy standing in a box yelling scripture passages and, and things to people. Uh, and at one point, I looked, and there's nobody standing around him, and he's still yelling. And I was thinking, this is curious. I've not ever seen this before. I want to know what this guy's motivation is. So uh, the student and I walked over, and we just kind of stood there for a little bit, and I was waiting for him to kind of pause and notice that we were there, but he never did it. He never stopped and said, hey, can I talk to you guys? And so I interrupted him, um, and uh, he kind of glared at me and said, would you let me finish? <laughs> I said, okay. And so the student and I went over and sat on a wall for a little bit. We talked, and we talked about what was going on and our perception of it. And then afterwards, he got through. It was about 20 minutes later, he came and said, okay, I'll, I'll talk with you. And so I just asked him about, you know, do people respond to this very well? And his response was, uh, you know, I'm doing it because God tells me to do it. So what was he doing? He wasn't really interacting with people, loving people, he was checking something off a box. It doesn't matter what impact I'm having, it matters if I'm checking this off my box before the hard man upstairs. I've got to do this. I talk to people who are afraid to pray because they're afraid that they're going to say something wrong. They're going to say something wrong to God and then God's going to be angry with them. Listen, he's, a, he's tender. He's not the hard man of this passage. You don't have to bury that. You can come freely before him and just talk to him the way you would talk to a friend, the way that you would talk to other people. You're going to grow in your knowledge and understanding of him, but you can talk to him and pray to him and have a conversation with him. And he listens, and he's not saying, well, you, that's not what that word means. You know, he, he's not doing that with you. He's patient and he's kind with you. You can pray. I had a guy I was, uh, wanted to meet with me about our church plant, and he was looking here, and at one point uh, in the conversation, he said, you, uh, there's nobody in this room, in case you're wondering, okay? There's nobody in here. At one point in the conversation, he said, I don't envy you with your job. He said, you as a pastor are under a terrifying burden. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you misspeak, that God's going to judge you severely. And, I, you know, in my mind, I was like, oh, no. But then I was like, no, that's, that's not, I think he's off base in what he's saying. 
So I said, well, what do you think he's going to do to me? And he, you know, he's, well, he's going to judge you. It's like, okay. Um, but as I thought about it, I thought, you know, that guy's got the wrong view of God. And so what I said to him was, this is not a terrifying burden. It's a privilege. I get to handle holy things and hold them forth to other people to hear about this great and good God. It's not a terrifying burden. It's a beautiful thing he's called me to do, and I love it. Um, but when we have that attitude that's a terrifying burden, only the pastor can pray, only the pastor can do these things, it's terrifying. Don't any of the rest of you try this at home because you're going to die. <laughs> Is it makes us afraid to share our faith with other people. I'm terrified. What would God say to me? What if I mess this up? What if this person never believes in Jesus? It's like, well, that wasn't up to you. He's just asking you to be faithful, to talk about what you believe, to talk about this God who's loved you so well, to talk about the kindly master, Jesus. You know, Jesus says at one point, he says, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light because I am gentle and I'm humble in heart. There's no God in heaven unlike Jesus on earth. If that's what Jesus is like, Jesus said, I do only what I see my father doing. This is what the Father is like. And this is what J.I. Packer says. He says, There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve Him, boldness to share Him, and contentment in Him. And in Jesus, we find God to be different than the hard man, the judge on the, the rainbow that we think He is. We have a God who is willing to live and die with us and for us. A God who loves us enough to give himself for us that he, may, he might also give himself to us. People were drawn to Jesus. They were drawn to the, the God-man. They were pressing in upon him because people who never thought they had a shot at God, at holiness, at heaven, at acceptance or forgiveness or anything else, found it and still find that in Jesus. Right? I don't bring my righteousness. I have none. But Jesus gives me all the righteousness that I need come into the presence of my heavenly Father. So we find in Jesus our joy, our delight, and we find in him fullness. Last thing. Verse 29, he says, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. They weren't expecting, this is an unexpected abundance. They didn't know this was coming, that the master was going to do all this. But what the master basically does is when he says, come and share your master's happiness, he's not saying, I'm in a pretty good mood. Let's celebrate. That's not what he's saying. He's inviting them into the goodness of his household, into the wealth of his house. He's inviting them into the inner circle. They're no longer just servants. He's going to put them in charge of much. They're going to be at a different table with him. They're being brought in more deeply into relationship with him. A man with a proper understanding wants more of God. He pursues God. He wants to have, wants his life to revolve around God. And that's exactly what he's giving these men is, I'm drawing you closer in. You're going to have more of this relationship. And there's a little bit of a forward-facing aspect to this too, is the, this is not today. It's in the future that this is coming. Because it's come, it happens when the, when the master comes back. But in the meantime... There are benefits. One is this. There's a benefit in life because of perspective. Knowing who the master is and knowing that he's coming back gives us perspective on the world. I, did a, I gave a eulogy at a funeral on Friday for my uncle. 
And uh, it's a fascinating thing to talk about death as a Christian in a culture that often doesn't want to talk about death because to them it's the end. But for a Christian, end is, uh, death is not the end. It's not ultimate. It's not defining. The gospel is defining. So we know that we go on. We'll see each other again. And so in that way, the gospel, Jesus, in our lives, the kingdom, the resources we've been given, enable us to have joy even in a day of sadness. Or when you go out on a, a day like today, and maybe it, you know, it's going to warm up, it's going to be a beautiful day, and you say, this is a beautiful day. The gospel enables you to see this as more than just a beautiful day. There's, there's a meaning to it underneath the surface, right? I love cake. You probably love cake, right? But there's something, that, and you just love cake because it's cake. But when it's a birthday cake that somebody has made for you, that gives it an extra special meaning to you. There's love attached to it. As a Christian, we look at a day like this and go, God's involved in this. This is beautiful. He's not left us alone. There's a meaning and purpose and significance to the world that extends just beyond my physical senses. Second, the thing we experience in this life is, uh, is growth as a Christian. Again, Charles Spurgeon, I love quoting him, but this is a great quote from him about the impact Jesus makes on our lives. He says, Jesus has begun to save me from my inbred sins. I trust him to drive them all out. I trust him to curb my temper, to subdue my will, to enlighten my understanding, to keep my passions in check, to comfort my despondency, to help my weakness, to illuminate my darkness. I trust him to, dis to dwell in me as my life, to reign in me as my king, to sanctify me holy, spirit, soul, and body, and then to take me up to dwell with the saints in light forever. So benefits now, but when he comes, the ultimate benefit later, when he renews all things. Uh, and and if he hints at this uh, when he talks about the end and whoever has more, more will be given. He'll have an abundance. Ephesians 2 says that when uh, in God in the coming ages will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. There's more and better that's coming. This is just the foyer. The show's coming. My kids are in here, so I'm going to tell a story on them. Actually, you just have to bear with me. I'm telling they're, Yes, I didn't ask your permission, but I love you still. I do. Um, when they were little, Catherine and Connor uh, were invited by their grandparents to go to the Peace Center in Greenville, South Carolina to watch uh, Little Orphan Annie, a little stage production. And I think it was a traveling kind of you know, off-Broadway thing. And so they got dressed up. They went to Little Orphan Annie. And in the foyer, it was, they knew all these kids were coming. So they had the, dec the foyer decorated for kids. And so they walked in, and it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. There was music. There was laughter. There was a lot of energy. And then they found there was free cake and cupcakes and sweets and lemonade and everything you're, as a kid you would want your parents not to be around and eat. So they were enjoying this. And the thing is, they had no idea that there was actually a, a musical about to take place. They thought, this is it. This is the greatest. The lobby of the Peace Center is the greatest place I've ever been in my whole life. This is the greatest day of my life. And then they did the thing where the lights dim, you know, and the doors open. And it's, oh, we're supposed to, oh, we're supposed to go in there. And so they get ushered into the theater and they find their seats. And that's when it started. Little Orphan Annie. You know, it's a hard knock life. 
for us, you know, all that. And then the sun will come out sometime in May, probably. Uh, the sun will come out tomorrow, you know, all those things. And uh, they just sat raptured. And so when they came back, you know, they talked about the juice and the, the cupcakes and things, but they were singing the songs and they were doing their arms like the kids did in the musical. It was like, it was beautiful to watch. What came after the foyer overshadowed the foyer, no matter how good the foyer was. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, what's coming? God bringing us into his happiness, bringing us more fully into his joy. That's the show. That's why we do what we do, because we know he loves us, and that is what awaits us. enables us to persevere, enables us to bear up under suffering. It enables us to give ourselves here and now, because we know this God has given himself for us, and he's given himself to us. And that's beautiful. So we can't see it now. Uh, the master's on a journey, but we live for him now because he died for us then. A person who believes in Jesus has a real expectancy and desire for Christ's return, has an eagerness to meet him and to see him, has a love and longing for his appearing and setting all things right, and lives according to this every day. So what is this about? Ultimately, it's not about what you do for Jesus like everything else in the Bible, it's ultimately about what Jesus has done for us. It's, it's not about earning a reward. It's about Jesus being the reward. It's not about religion. It's about the good news of Jesus. Bury your religion in the dirt, but in delight in the Master, put your faith to work. Get out there and say, I love this King I love this master. He's been so good. I can't wait for what he has in store. And I give myself to him today. Let me pray.